Welcome everyone to episode 196 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thanks for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack, for what is going to be another Q&A. So we're going to start off this one with an exciting one, all about prep brain. And it says, what is the scientific rationale behind prep brain? Ooh, Jack, I don't quite know if you're actually pronouncing it correctly. Prep brain. I believe it's actually pronounced prep brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> You need a little bit higher pitch there. <laughs> I'll let you pronounce that one correctly then. <laughs> a but prep brain or having a prep brain moment. Prep brain, I would say, is quite a common phenomenon that is experienced among physique athletes who are undertaking comp preps. Would you say so? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. So prep brain, right? I think that we can dive into what is physiologically going on when someone is having prep brain moments or psychologically or even socially what is meant when people talk about having prep brain moments. But I guess, should we start off with maybe giving a definition of what is meant by prep brain? Yeah, I would say it's essentially a lapse in concentration. Mm. That's how I would personally define it. Yeah, concentration, probably just not feeling quite as sharp or attentive either and like you know some people have not short-term memory loss but they can struggle with short-term memory sometimes long-term memory as well you know just feeling a little bit on edge Mm. yeah or even a bout of prep brain feelings or the sensation of the diet being quite difficult Mm -hmm. I get it. There's no objective definition of prep brain, so we could essentially say whatever we want here. <laughs> I think that is quite unique to competitors to call it prep brain, but for anyone else out there in society who isn't undertaking a bodybuilding journey, a lot of people would just refer to it as brain fog. Mm. Yeah, just not quite feeling as mentally sharp. You're maybe a little bit forgetful. You just can't really concentrate on certain things. But let's talk about the physiology behind what might be causing these things. So first off, our brain, it requires this wonderful thing called glucose. Our brain and our spinal cord, essentially our central nervous system, it does rely on glucose as its main fuel source to really maintain homeostasis. And on average, the human body relies on about 120 grams of glucose every single day to just have the central nervous system continue to do what it needs to do and keep you alive. Now, when you think about that, 120 grams of glucose or 120 grams of carbohydrates purely dedicated to your brain and spinal cord, someone who is in a comp prep and they've been chronically dieted for many, many months and probably their carbohydrate intake isn't all that high. And if it is higher than 120 grams, then their muscles are actually reliant on a lot more of those carbohydrates to store muscle glycogen and to also fuel exercise performance. Plus we got to think glucose is the primary energy source, not just for the central nervous system, but for the entire body and basically every single cell within our body. So, Hey, you know, Jack, we're kind of running into a lack of energy sources to just function at our highest capacity as human beings. Mm, Yeah, that is a very valid point. Ultimately, then leading to people feeling like they're low in energy and they're lethargic and they don't have a lot of brain power. So 
that's kind of a bit of the physiology, I guess you could say, behind prep brain. But another thing that would really tie into that, Jack, is not just glucose and energy sources, but actually micronutrient intake. Because once again, when someone is undertaking a comp prep, they're chronically dieted, they're probably following a very meticulous set plan with their food intake. Far more often than not, people are running into some issues where they're not actually consuming all of their essential micronutrients. And if you even Google nutrients for the brain, you're not just gonna run into things like EPA and DHA from omega-3 fatty acids or you know someone telling you to have some choline. Basically, every single micronutrient and macronutrient is going to come up on a list because our brain, it needs a little bit of everything to actually function at its highest capacity. So that's another thing there too, is that because people follow quite restrictive diets during a competition prep, and it's not uncommon for people to actually be running into low-key nutrient deficiencies, they're probably not having the highest cognitive function there too, because maybe they're not consuming an abundance of different colorful fruits and vegetables. So they're not getting a lot of folate in their diet. They're not getting a lot of beta carotenes in their diet. They're not getting a lot of flavonoids and antioxidants in their diet. Maybe they aren't consuming a lot of dairy sources or calcium fortified sources. So they're not consuming a lot of calcium. They're not consuming a lot of whole eggs. So they're not getting a lot of choline. The list goes on and on and on. Mm. Yeah, I think that's one that maybe many people don't consider. Or I think people are also a bit ignorant to the fact that they are nutrient deficient. And when people do think about nutrient deficiency, maybe they often think of, oh, I must have like scurvy or I have to have like rotting teeth or my toenails are falling off or something in order to be nutrient deficient. But there are varying levels of, of nutrient deficiency. And a lot of the time you won't really realize it until you get a blood test mm -hmm. yeah you don't have to be incredibly fatigued or chronically fatigued or your exercise performance doesn't have to be suffering for you to be nutrient deficient mm -hmm. yeah and those things creep up on you and mm. once again it's chronic it's not acute it's not like you don't eat oily fish for a few days or you don't supplement with omega-3 fatty acids for a few days and it's like whoops there you go you ha are completely devoid of epa or dha in your entire body or you don't consume some red meat for a few days or you don't consume some dairy sources you're not just completely devoid of iron and calcium these things happen over a chronic time period once again that does kind of relate to comp prep because if someone is on a very just meticulous diet where they're only eating from a subset of foods for many months on end then yeah, you could run into some low-key nutrient deficiencies. <laughs> but it usually comes on that you start to feel those things and then you start to see those things. So like you alluded to with scurvy, <laughs> uh, you're probably going to start just feeling a little bit crummy before you start finding out, oh my God, I'm missing a tooth. <laughs> so hey, you could even make the argument there that someone doesn't even need to necessarily be dieted or in a prep to be experiencing feelings of prep brain and brain fog. If you've got a really poor quality diet and you are nutrient deficient, even though energy is in abundance and you could even be at calorie maintenance or in a calorie surplus, you might still not feel very cognitively switched on. Mm. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind that these responses are 
somewhat hypothetical. Like mm. we haven't gathered these from a research paper. This is just based on our knowledge and our experience mm-hmm. working with people and what makes the most sense from a, um, from a theoretical standpoint. Yeah. So that's the physiology you could say behind prep brain, but then socially or psychologically prep brain. Once again, people allude to the fact that, oh man, I'm just prep brain today. It's really getting the better of me. They might be alluding to the fact that they don't feel quite as attentive. They can't concentrate on things. They're having issues with short-term memory. They just can't really focus. They are ultimately feeling very lethargic, low in energy, etc. But man, that's the case where I I get it, right? You can have moments like that where because you're just very exhausted, you justify some actions to be like, oh man, that was silly, prep brain. But once it gets to the point where you are displaying behaviors that just aren't really conducive of a good quality human being, someone's being rude, someone's being inconsiderate, someone's being overly selfish, someone's quite insulting, man, I just do not see prep brain as a justification or a rationale to not treat other people very nicely. And if you do have a prep brain moment, my best advice would to be just apologize and say, hey, you know, that was unintentional or listen, I was very out of line and just leave it at that. I don't think that you need to justify poor behavior and blame it on prep brain. Just apologize if you are not being a very good human being and you do something or you say something and then in hindsight you're like, man, that was actually a little bit harsh. Simply just apologize and say, I was out of line or listen, I really didn't actually intend to do that. That is totally my bad. Because you can't just blame it on prep. Because prep is a choice and you can't be complaining about choice, you know? And at the end of the day, if you're being rude to someone else, then they don't really care. They don't care about your justification and you can't justify it. You can't say like, listen, I'm sorry, but that was a prep brain moment, but you need to understand I've been up since 2.30 a.m., haven't been sleeping very well. I'm trying to lose a lot of weight right now. So my coach has me doing so much cardio every single day and I had a massive training session and you know my boss was just on me at work and I've been really stressed out. So that's why I cut you off in traffic or that's why I got home and yelled at you. It's like, no man, there's no justification. Just apologize and try to not blame prep for poor actions. Mm. I think that prep brain, I think exacerbates people's negative traits potentially. Like if someone already is a bit snappy or they do get frustrated easily or they might have a bit of a temper, then I think being chronically dieted and having poorer sleep, being on low amounts of food and, and exercising a lot like that, I think exacerbates it. It's, it's very rare that I think people would experience less of those symptoms. But mm. another aspect of speaking of, of poor sleep, I think that's another reason behind brain fog or prep brain as well, because uh, we know that poor levels of sleep inhibits recovery, inhibits people's cognition, uh, memory retention, etc. Mm, yeah, of course, you're just going to feel that little bit more on edge, maybe a little bit more irritable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's,
there's no way around it. You and I have both experienced things like this, but I think that's where communication comes in and that's really important. So for example, if you have a partner and you are just having a moment or a day where you aren't exactly feeling your best, I would just communicate with them and just say like, hey, listen, I'm not trying to be rude, but I just need a little bit of space or I just need a little bit of my own quiet time. So then that way you can just deal with things yourself. That goes whether you have a partner or you're living with housemates or you're working alongside coworkers. But I think just having that clear line of communication, no sense of blame, full responsibility for why you're feeling that way. And hopefully that way it actually works out a little bit better. Because you never want to be that person that, you know, people from an outside observer's perspective is like, God, this whole bodybuilding thing, people are just grumpy all the time. They're hungry, they're angry, they're walking around exhausted. Like, why would anyone want to do that? It paints the sport in a really bad light and it gives it just a a bad name. So please don't add to that. (laughs) Mm. I mean, but that's the reality of bodybuilding as well. Like, not necessarily those symptoms specifically, but it's incredibly difficult. It's quite restrictive as well. And that's why it's certainly not for everyone. Mm. And not everyone's going to understand it. That's for sure. Yeah. There's certainly aspects and times where it's going to feel very, very tough, but you just have to own that and take radical responsibility for it. Yeah. Well, actually, Jack, how about something a little bit lighthearted then? <laughs> Prep brain moments. We've all had them. We've all done silly things. Do you have any prep brain moments that you can recall on? So we were talking about this earlier today and I I honestly couldn't really think about anything cognition wise other than like the standard things of which I still do now, to be honest, like I'll put my coffee in the fridge or I'll put my milk in the cupboard and it doesn't help that they're like literally right next to each other. But I think the, the one thing that stands out to me in prep, which I think is more so associated with just general fatigue is like I would I would get up usually at night to like use the bathroom and that's when I would be most tired and anyone in prep knows that the amount of bathroom breaks are quite uh, quite numerous and I would basically get up and then rather than standing up like most men do to use the bathroom I would literally just sit down which doesn't when I say it out loud doesn't really seem that big of a deal but like the fact that I was so tired that I couldn't even be bothered standing up to piss like and I would just want to sit down and just even even I remember it now like you just give out a big mental sigh of relief because you don't have to stand up you can just sit down (laughs) oh my goodness I wonder if there's any other male competitors out there that can relate to that if they've ever experienced that is it was it simply just at nighttime or was it ever during the day like you know when you're training at the gym and you know your sessions in prep or anywhere probably between two to three hours let's be honest and gosh it's kind of like do an exercise go pee do an exercise go pee heck sometimes you can't even make it through all three sets you can only make it through two you got to go pee like i know the number of times that i actually know i don't know the number of times that's something i've always been curious about i'm like 
do you know what? I should just commit to one day starting to make a tally of how many times do I go pee? Because I swear to God, it's probably over 50 times, but I never get around to doing it. So Jack, if you mm. could hold me accountable to making that uh, that pee tally. But as a girl, always sit down on the toilet, unless the toilet is absolutely danky. You got to do that like squat thing. But even then it like sprays. It's just a mess. <laughs> but I feel for you guys. You've always got to stand up. And I guess for us girls, like that's an opportunity where we get to sit down and just be like, oh, okay. And then you got to get back up again. Mm. But was it getting back to this? Was it just at night or was it ever at the gym? No, it was mainly at night, specifically if I had to get out out of bed to use the bathroom. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure why, but (laughs) I mean, probably because I was the most fatigued combined with being a bit groggy from, from having just woken up. Yeah. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> Especially combined with like often in prep when you get up suddenly, I'm assuming because of blood pressure, partly like you do get a bit lightheaded sometimes. So mm. then trying to stand up when you're lightheaded and, and your legs feel like lead is, um, is probably a recipe for kind of a concussion maybe. Yeah, it's tough. I know there's been a number of times where I've been sitting on a toilet and I'm like seeing stars. <laughs> like, you know, those little twinkles that you see in the air. Mm-hmm. Do you? Yeah, I get them occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's quite a male prep brain moment then. But hey, that's that's not too bad. That's definitely more fatigue than you just being really silly and forgetful. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm fairly cognitively switched on. Mm. Yeah, even in prep. But what about you? Oh gosh, biggest prep brain moment. I think this was in my last prep. And for anyone that knows me, they know that I love buying really funky looking cheap discount fruit. And there was a point where I'd gone to the fruit market and I'd bought both cucumbers and I'd bought zucchini because I was having a salad at one point in the day and I was having a little stir fry at another point in the day. Well, these things looked very, very similar. These funky looking discount cucumbers and zucchinis. Long story short, I went to make a kangaroo stir fry, which I would normally put a zucchini in, but I actually grabbed a cucumber from the fridge, chopped up the whole thing, put it in the frying pan, cooked it all up. I didn't realize that I was eating cooked cucumber in my stir fry until I had it on my fork and it was in my mouth. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> well, one, anything kind of tastes good when you're dieting, right? And I was also like, I'm not wasting food. And hey, this this isn't half bad. What was really on my mind at that point was, did I track this correctly? (laughs) Did I track this? I tracked this as a zucchini, but it's actually a cucumber. Now I'm gonna have to go back into my fitness pal and rejig my macros. And off the top of my head, dietitian and all, I don't know which one actually has more calories per 100 grams, cucumber or zucchini. Zucchini. I would guess zucchini. Yeah. Has less water in it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's definitely more firm, especially when you cook it compared to a, a very squishy cucumber. <laughs> but that was my biggest prep brain moment, uh, stir frying cucumbers. But other than that, it's just little things, you know? It's just those little bits of just not being quite as mentally sharp and just that little bit forgetful. Yeah. But uh, I don't think there's anything too drastic. Mm, yeah i think we're fairly well off compared to some other people yeah and once again if you do silly things like you don't necessarily have to be in prep you might just be doing silly things because you might be a little silly person but you just you got to apologize 
<laughs> you can't just blame prep brain for everything. Are you interested in optimizing your nutrition, training, or physique? If so, head on over to our website and explore our coaching services. We have options for everyone, regardless of whether or not you want to compete. Tap the link in the show notes below or head on over to our website, thebodybuildingdietitians.com to inquire now. Okay, well, Jack, we'll move on to this next question. And this one says, what is the purpose of a pre-prep phase? Good question, yeah. So there's quite a few different reasons why someone might wanna do a pre-prep phase. And I think ultimately it comes down to preparing that individual for the prep itself, whether that be from a physiological standpoint or a mental standpoint or both, of course, especially for first time competitors, it's definitely going to be a mix of both. Whereas someone who has prepped numerous times before and their off season looks quite similar to a prep potentially, it's more so going to be around ensuring their starting point is sufficient in terms of their proximity to their stage weight mm. and maybe just fine tuning certain variables around like tracking calories and macros and getting back into a, a reasonably strict routine with their meal composition and meal choices. So yeah, I guess what that m might look like specifically, we can start off with, with body composition and physiology. Ideally we want someone to be no more than 20% above their stage weight. So if someone is 75 kilos, like their predicted stage weight is 75, then you wouldn't want to be starting prep more than 15 kilos over that, which is still pretty darn heavy, to be honest. Like I would probably be starting someone around like 85 to 90 kilos, mm. just depending on like where they are most com comfortable. Cause some people naturally push up a fair bit higher in the off season. That's where they're strongest. That's where they feel best. That's where they're the, the most energetic. And maybe they might get close to even triple digits in the off season. And therefore in their pre-prep phase, they, they might need to come down to like the high eighties and they might end up starting at closer to 90 kilos. Whereas someone like myself, for example, uh, I naturally feel a lot more comfortable, like in the midway zone, like not too heavy, but not too light either, like not too lean. And therefore I, it's, it's a fair bit easier for me just to do a slightly more efficient pre-prep phase where I just do a mini cut maintain that and then start prep. And I think I'll be starting prep like roughly more like 16 to 18% above stage weight. Mm, yeah. yeah, this whole notion of a pre-prep phase, I'd say even in the past few years, it's quite new to the whole bodybuilding and physique sports scene. Because originally, I think people looked at bodybuilding as just two primary phases. You had comp prep and you had the off season. Whereas now, I think because the sport's getting even more competitive every single season, every single year, and it's attracting a lot more people worldwide, people are starting to really recognize that, hey, one, there can't be an off season, this has to be a year round sport, but also bordering both of those two very distinct phases of a comp prep, and not an off season, but an improvement season, there now needs to be the implementation of two other phases, your pre-prep phase, which occurs just before you enter into the comp prep itself, and then that recovery phase, which borders the end of a competition prep. So it kind of cycles through from comp prep, recovery, improvement season, pre-prep, comp prep, keep going around that circle. Yeah, so I guess to follow up with that body composition side of things, establishing whether someone does need to do a mini cut in their pre-prep phase is important because 
if you do start too heavy, then you'll end up just having a rough time in prep. If you want to get truly conditioned, you'll end up losing muscle. Your rate of loss will be too fast and you won't have the opportunity potentially to do things like refeeds and diet breaks, which uh, can help give back to the system and allow the coach and competitors to see what they're working with as well from a physique standpoint. Mm. I'd argue it also makes prep more enjoyable too. Mm, for sure. And more successful because if you do have those more frequent occurrences of being able to give back to the system, then that's going to translate into probably improved training performance, improved sleep, lower levels of stress, and all of those things combined are probably going to help with better muscle retention and a better package delivered to stage. Yeah, most definitely. And then I guess separate to body composition, but also kind of separate to the mentality side of things as well as just general routine and structure and sort of mimicking what you would want to do in a prep essentially. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but just ensuring that someone is confident in their routine, ensuring that they can get through that mini card and dieting phase. Because uh, if they're struggling with adherence and consistency and really struggling with the deficit side of things in pre-prep, then do you, as a coach, do you really want that competitor competing? Mm. Um, because, they, yeah, if someone is showing indications of struggle, then they've still got a very long ways ahead of them. Mm. They've still got like 25 plus weeks of dieting to go and achieving suboptimal levels of body fat. Mm. So Yeah, and that's a conversation that I have with all of my competitors prior to them entering into a prep is saying straight up, listen, I don't want it to be the case where adherence is a topic of discussion, this prep. Like let someone else beat you on show day because they had a better physique than you, because they'd been training longer than you, because they have superior genetics to you. Don't simply let someone beat you on show day because they followed their plan and you didn't. So that's, that's a huge component. And that might come off a little bit like, whoa, <laughs> to some people. But hey, if you want to take this sport seriously and you really want to do your absolute best and you want to be seriously challenged, that's why it's important to undertake these sort of pre-prep phases so that when you do enter into comp prep itself, you can just hit the ground running and you can just get that immense satisfaction from the fact that if I follow this plan, I'm basically guaranteed my best result. Mm. I mean, assuming the plan is good, which through you, of course it is, but that's not, unfortunately, that's not the same with it. Mm. Like some, someone else could follow a plan perfectly good on them for doing that. But if it's not a great plan, then they might not look their best, unfortunately, which yeah. is why picking your coaches incredibly important yeah of course working alongside a coach who's going to help you make the right decisions at the right time but you do want it to be the case of you're making those decisions simply because hey you've been dotting every i crossing every single t doing everything that's been asked of you but people hit plateaus in weight loss so this is why we need to make this next modification to the plan mm. yeah but i think another thing is too is that preparing someone for the prep in terms of their behaviors, their routines, their habits, all of those good things, but also having a little bit of a taste tester as well for dieting because dieting is a skill. And in most cases, people can't even last six days of consistently dieting, let alone six months. So I think in your terms where you were talking about 
I would say that's probably more of a long-term pre-prep phase if you're trying to establish an even better starting position from a body composition standpoint for someone is that that pre-prep phase might be extended to like two or three months prior to the prep beginning itself so that someone does get a little bit of a taste tester for dieting and they can be exposed again to what's it like to be on a set plan? What's it like to hit my macro targets with an even higher level of accuracy? What's it like to really establish behaviors, routines, habits, so that everything really is just ticking over day after day. I think establishing all of those things is really important so that you're not going from a very flexible improvement season and then you wake up on Monday morning and it's in prep and everything is expected to be executed at the highest degree. You know, you have to turn that dial up. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I guess that yeah, partly does relate into the whether prep itself is going to be manageable for that individual. But it undoubtedly is a good avenue to pursue for, for any competitor, but especially uh, competitors who are competing for the first or second time or maybe have had a huge gap um because even i know for myself like it's even going to help me with just the like the excitement building excitement like i've been above 90 kilos for the majority of my off season and i know that being more like between 88 and 90 i'll look leaner i i know i'll feel better and i'll be eating less food and that sort of reinforcement over my physique is going to be positive for me and they'll be just be building i guess positive hype around the start of prep, mm. which I think is good rather than like you don't, obviously someone should never go into prep with the thought of foreboding or uh, there might be some anxiety due to, due to the unknown, but never someone going into prep saying, Oh, I, I don't want to do this. <laughs> well then don't do it. You're, <laughs> exactly, the, yeah. you're the only one that's choosing to do this. No one's making you or forcing you to do anything, mm. but that's exactly how I felt during my pre prep phase before I started prep 10 weeks ago. I felt like, a horse behind gates who was just like banging, like, let me out, let me out on that track. I want to race. Like you want to have built up that much, just excitement and energy to then carry you through the entire prep. So you really want to just be banging at that metal saying, let me go. Mm. Yeah. I think especially also in those first probably 10 to 15 weeks is also when someone is going to get like their best foot forward. Mm. And that's also when they're going to lose the majority of the weight in prep. If someone's losing more weight in the second half of prep than the first half, you know, they either the plan in place hasn't been adequate or they just haven't been adherent in that first half and they're having to play catch up mm. in the second half. So yeah, in the first half of prep, you always want a faster rate of loss than the second half. And there should be much more weight lost in that, in that first half or first 15 weeks. And then the final 10 ish weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And it's around getting your head around the fact that, no one day or no one week matters more than another in prep. Someone could argue, oh, you know, peak week, have to make sure that everything is just meticulously planned out. Yes, but what about when you're 23 weeks out? Because what you're doing when you're 23 weeks out is going to dictate how you look in peak week and it's going to dictate how you look on show day too. So I would just get your head around that, that there's no hierarchy of days of importance of this matters more than that during the entire comp prep itself, hell, your improvement season is obviously going to influence your pre-prep, your pre-prep is going to influence your comp prep, and then your comp prep is going to influence your recovery phase. It keeps going round and round. They all bleed into one another. 
Mm. Yeah. Suddenly. I think that there's probably three different circumstances for a pre-prep phase. I'd say that if you'd signed up with a client who, let's say that they wanted to do season B of next year, Jack, and in just a few months time, they're going to be starting their prep for season B. That's the case where if you were to onboard that client and you're like, yes, okay, I can see that from your body composition standpoint and also just your behaviors, your lifestyle, I would be supportive of coaching you through a competition prep. You know, when you've only got a few months up your sleeve, there's not a hell of a lot that you can actually do in an improvement season. So that's where I would probably classify that as more of a pre-prep phase. If someone is a first timer, then those few months prior to them actually being in the prep officially, I would classify that as their pre-prep phase. And maybe that means that they need to get a taste tester for dieting, be exposed to it, build a few dieting skills. Maybe they need to even further refine things with their lifestyle so that they really can develop a bodybuilding routine so that it's a very smooth transition then into prep or that second one that you were alluding to where maybe you've been working with a client long-term, they really thrive at slightly higher body weights, but you're like, Hey, so that we can actually bring your absolute best look to stage and we have the time up our sleeve, let's do a pre-prep diet prior, maybe four to six weeks. Then you have a few weeks at maintenance, holding that body weight within a buffer range, trying to get their calories back up and then going into the prep itself. That could be option two, or there's option three. I know that our good friend Lawrence Grieve did this. I know that I did this. It's a case of where you don't necessarily run some sort of dieting phase or mini cut prior to the comp prep, but rather you give yourself a string of weeks where you are purposely trying to hold yourself at maintenance and you are just really refining and establishing a whole bunch of different things in terms of, okay, this is the training program I'm going to be on for comp prep. I'm well accustomed to training on these specific days at these specific times with these specific movements at this specific gym or gyms. These are the foods that I digest really well. And these are the foods that I'm going to be eating in prep, just smaller portion sizes. This is my daily routine in terms of when I fall asleep, when I wake up, when I go for walks, when I eat, when I work, establishing all of these tiny little things for a string of weeks, but also just building up that excitement and that anticipation. So you are that horse behind the gates who just wants to race out on the track. And then once it's go time and prep officially begins, the excitement is just there to just rocket launch you into it. But on the flip side too, you wake up on the first morning of prep and you're like, Hey, it's just another day. <laughs> I'm basically doing everything that I was doing previously in my pre-prep phase, but I'm just eating a little bit less food. You know, that goes a with little the... bit less, <laughs> well, sometimes a lot less, a lot less, probably about 800 to a thousand calorie drop compared to your pre-prep phase. Yeah. But I'm training, I'm posing, I'm walking, I'm sleeping, I'm eating. I'm still being a very good human being and I'm not treating anyone poorly and blaming prep brain on it. <laughs> so it's just that super smooth transition. And if you can build that sort of lifestyle that you absolutely love and you thrive on, and then the only component that really changes is the total bites of food that you eat per day, man, you're actually in for a really good time. I think that's uh, definitely a gold standard way of approaching it. Yeah. Prepare yourself. Yeah. Prepare your body, prepare your mind, prepare your lifestyle. 
and bodybuilding, it really can be a very enjoyable and rewarding ride. Cool. Well, um, we'll wrap up here, I think, but I think first we need to talk about one thing that we learned this week. <laughs> well, Jack, what did you learn this week? Um, I learned that uh, catfish really like squid as bait. Yeah, we weren't fishing yesterday and we decided to try some squid, premium squid actually. It costs an extra few dollars than normal squid apparently. Ah, is that why it was the full squid with the tentacles and not just the squid fillets? I'm not sure. Well, what, you bought it. What was the difference between premium and... Well, I don't know. And... It was frozen, so I couldn't tell. But you would think that squid is squid, so like it would be the full squid regardless of whether it was premium or not. I can tell you this. It wasn't ink-free. I got that shiz all over my hands when I was cutting it up. It's not good. <laughs> oh, it luckily washed off. Yeah, well, the, I think the benefit of squid as well, it just stays on the hook so much better and you can cast it out further and and get to some bigger fish as mm. opposed to just being like a few meters offshore. Yeah, yeah. It's really tough bait, which is always nice because you can cast it out multiple times. It must have been premium stuff though because you and I have been on the beach before and there's fishermen are so generous <laughs> if a fisherman like stops fishing and then he's walking off the beach and there's other fishermen around or fisherwomen fisher people because <laughs> uh, i have to say i think i'm like the only chick out there with a rod but anywho i'm actually one of the most successful fisher people <laughs> not to toot my own horn but people have often given us like their leftover squid and for some reason in the past you and i have just never had much success on it I was like, you know, this stuff stays on the hook, but I don't know. I think honestly, it's because of the casting distance. Like you didn't, you only caught one fish on your rod yesterday and that was mm. the small broom. Mm. So yeah. I think... Catfish are out in the deeper part of the channel. Yeah. Because I had, I just used a heavier sinker. Mm. Yeah. But hey, must've been premium stuff. Yeah. But what did you learn this past week? Okay. I learned something from the good people of Instagram land. I put out a picture of my morning breakfast and lately I've been enjoying about 90 grams of chopped chicken breast, a whole egg, sprinkle about 15 grams of mozzarella cheese on there, a few little herbs and spices. But I put a picture up and I said, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Because I was very curious about what my Instagram followers would say. I must say that about 70% of people voted chicken and only 30% voted the egg came first. <laughs> and I had one of my old housemates, her name is Zoe, she's a geologist, actually respond to me. And this is without her seeing the poll results at all, but she's like, not to sound nerdy or anything, but I just wanted to let you know that there are actually fossil records of eggs being around for the last 195 million years. And get this, chickens have only been around for about 10,000 years. So there you go, guys. It literally does not make sense in the timeline of evolution for the chicken to have come before the egg. Literally millions, millions of years of head. So <laughs> there you go. chicken eggs, though? It, uh, the chicken had to have come from an egg. Yeah, I'm... I mean, we don't. <laughs> I think we know who added to that 70% who said the chicken you, came first. <laughs> you said the egg came first, though, as well. I was sitting next to you on the couch. No, you said the chicken came first. Wait, no, and then you agreed <laughs> with me. 
Jack, the egg came before the chicken. I'm not going to take one person on Instagram's word for that. She's a geologist. (laughs) And it's Google anything. Like, it just makes sense. Eggs came first before chickens. Yeah, fair enough. There you go. So which came first? The egg came first, my friends. But no, you did actually take it very literally. Because I think that you were thinking about the exact chicken in my pan. No, I wasn't thinking that. And the exact egg. Because then I was like, oh, wait a second. No, the way I think of it is eggs need to come from somewhere. So therefore, if the first chicken came from an egg, where did the egg come from? So that's why there needs to be a chicken before the egg. (laughs) No, because eggs would have just evolved. You don't know what you're talking about, though. <laughs> neither, did you, neither do you. <laughs> I know, so that, that's why it's more of a hypothetical question. No, I believe that chickens came from eggs, but then chickens would have evolved over time to then lay eggs. But we all so come from eggs. You and I came from eggs, mm-hmm. but we don't lay eggs yet. <laughs> you never know like the future of human evolution we might start popping them out and like heck you might even be like a seahorse and the males they carry them around yeah maybe yeah so there you go so you know there's there's a lot of things to happen in the future but only time will tell but for now we can tell what happened in the past and the eggs came first well, you're really <laughs> stoking your claim on that then <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. If you did enjoy it, please remember to take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram story, tell everyone that eggs are millions of years ahead of chickens, and we'll catch you in the next episode.